Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, has an amazing story that I, I really, really love. And uh, in fact, it, it's Jesus, and it says this. I'll just read it to you. It says this to, this is Jesus, by the way, and he's saying, he's teaching this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. But whether you've heard it or not, I, I would imagine that there is something in us that when we hear this, that God favors the humble over the self-righteous, I think there's something within us that just says, yeah, that sounds right, doesn't it? Down with the prideful. Down with the one who compare themselves to others. And hurrah to the one who admits their sin. Not with this, you know, nonchalant, like, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. We're all a sinner. But, but with this attitude, with this attitude, with the kind of attitude that finds a person so humbled by God that they, be, would, that they would be moved with such emotion over the reality of their sinfulness that they would literally be found beating their chest in in, in sorrow and in anguish, begging God for mercy. I think there's something in all of us, <laughs> even if you're, even if, I would even dare to say this, even if you're not someone who believes everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible, I think there's something in this story that would make all of us say, yeah, that sounds right. And why is that? I think because there is something that all of us know. That when it comes to living a deep and meaningful life, the heart matters, doesn't it? Like, the heart matters. Uh, before we go any further, yeah. I, I, I always forget to do this. I, well, I don't always forget to do this, but I, I, I always do this and I don't want to forget. Uh, uh, if we've never met, by the way, my name is Phil, and I get the honor of being the pastor of this local fellowship that call themselves Clarity Church. And if you're here for the first time with us, or maybe it's the first time in a while, you couldn't have picked a better Sunday to be with us because today is the first part of a series entitled The Heart Matters. And if you're able, uh, what I want to invite you to do is go ahead and open up whatever copy of the scriptures you have most readily available to you. 
uh, whether it's an app on your phone or maybe it's a hard copy Bible that you can find in one of the chair seats behind uh, near you, or maybe you, you have a, a, a Bible yourself. And, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be opening up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 1 through 5 as we talk about this idea of embracing humil- uh, humility, humility, whatever that is, humility. And uh, so to go ahead and turn there right now. And while you turn there, uh, what I will say is uh, I think most of you know that we're in this season. I, and being in Minnesota with a lot of Catholics and a lot of Lutherans, it's, it's kind of hard to ignore. But we are in this season called what? Lent. Okay. Now, some of you, I didn't grow up in Minnesota. I didn't grow up Lutheran. I was born and baptized a Catholic, but uh, that was very long ago, and I, that wasn't really part of my spiritual formation. Uh, and so I didn't grow up knowing about Lent. And uh, as I grew up, as I got older in faith, as I, you know, like, what is this all about? Um, if you didn't know this, I didn't know this. Uh, Lent means more than just like giving up chocolate, putting ashes on your head, or two for one filet of fish at McDonald's, right? I mean, hopefully, hopefully Lent means more than that. And, uh, <laughs> and listen, although, although the observance of Lent, the, the actual observance of what is this holiday or the season of Lent, even though it's not mentioned in, in the Bible, there is plenty of evidence in the scriptures to suggest that the, the importance of mourning over one's sin and repenting to God is part of the everyday rhythms of a fully engaged disciple of Jesus. There's enough evidence of that. And if you do your own research, you'll find that Lent isn't all that modern day has portrayed it to be. Modern day culture has portrayed it to be. It's not about the giving up of something that you feel that you can't live without. I think that's what most people think when they think of Lent. They're like, oh, okay, my coworker is going to be giving up on that thing that they tried to give up during New Year's, <laughs> right? Right? Or, uh, in fact, I did a search, just for kicks and giggles, of the top 10 things people give up for Lent. And, and listen, these are some of the things that they give up. Uh, Target, like the store. I think for some of you that would be like Aldi's. Or, uh, mm, mm, I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm just saying. Um, hot showers. Oh, like, oh, oh my goodness. Coffee, well, that makes sense. Social media, or, and then the other one is like a random food item that would only make sense to you. Right? <laughs> you know, you always said that person, like, I am giving up carrots that are longer than four inches because, well, whatever, I don't know. At its best, the season of Lent asks believers to face the stark reality that without Christ, we would be all marked for death because of sin. At its best. And, and you need to know this. While this series that we're in is not an exact representation of the observation of Lent, as more liturgical churches would observe, if you grew up in that, you're going to go, we're going to get halfway through this, and you're going to be like, this looks nothing like the Lent I grew up with. And I'll be like, ding, 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 ding. Congratulations, Sherlock. It's not. <laughs> um, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to capture in the same spirit what we want to do is we want to take a journey together that forces us to take inventory of our own lives. I think that's a real important thing. I think I think doing that, not only individually, but corporately as a church, is a very, very healthy thing 
for us to do. And um, believers for centuries did it, and it seemed to work. And so I'd like to take that journey with you over these next few weeks leading up to Easter. And so what we want to do is we want to set aside some time to take a a solemn look at our sin. I I will admit these next few weeks, I'm usually a jovial type of guy, and and I, I probably will continue to be so, but it will feel a little bit more serious. And uh, if you're wondering, like, why so serious, Phil? Uh, I will say to you, that's the point. Because we're going to be taking a solemn look at our sin and our need for repentance. At the same time, looking towards the price paid for our redemption through the death of Jesus. Now, why would we want to do something like this? That's, a, that's, that's, the, that's a, I think, the big question. Um, especially kind of in this postmodern culture that we live in that wants to automatically label feeling guilt as maybe like some harmful practice that flies in opposition to everything that defines self-health and self-care. I get it. Um, or as one... Uh, as, a, as a few Bible scholars in one commentary wrote, they, they wrote this. They said, "Feeling good about myself is much more in fashion. Anyone found beating his breast in guilt is sent for counseling until such negative behavior is corrected. It's not healthy to feel guilt. Humbling oneself is likewise not in vogue. The papers are full of advice that self-asserting behavior and affirming oneself are the means to success. But God's grace cannot be found." without humility. It is essential to receiving mercy. How many of you are in need of some mercy? And embracing humility is your new goal. In other words, there is a great spiritual benefit of spending a concerted effort of time and attention to gaining a solemn perspective of our sin and the effects of it, as well as our need for repentance and the price Jesus paid so we could be forgiven. There is a great spiritual benefit. It isn't morbid. It isn't unhealthy to be reminded that we are dust, that our life is but a vapor, or that we are still in the process of being conformed into the image of Christ. That's a good thing. In fact, the hope is that over the weeks leading up to Easter Sunday that we, is that we take a journey to refocus our minds, our hearts, and the everyday decisions we make in our lives on this fact that we are a people who desperately need a Savior so that before we can experience the triumph of Christ on our behalf, we first need to understand the depths to which we are in need of that very Savior. That's the hope. And so, to kick off this series, I want to talk about this idea of embracing humility. And what does that mean in particular? And what does that look like? My favorite explanation of how humility is defined in the Scriptures is this, and you've probably heard me use this uh, definition before, so if you're like, I think I've heard this definition before. Yes, I, 
I try to use as, as, as much as I can the same definition so I don't try to confuse you, but it's this. Humility is a right view of myself and what I've done in light of who God is and what He has done. Humility is a right view of myself and what I've done in light of who God is and what He has done. Now, if that's the definition, I think one of the best examples that, well, to me, I I believe really that demonstrates the importance of having a right heart towards God, a humble heart, is found in the story of a man by the name of Isaiah. Now, if you've never heard of Isaiah, uh, many of the early church leaders regarded Isaiah as, quote, the great prophet. <laughs> and even some of him referred to, some of, some people referred to his book that, that we, that we call a book of Isaiah as, uh, the fifth gospel because of all of the prophecies that point to and talk about the grace that will, that will be found in the coming Messiah. It's, it's chock full of them. But what is more impressive than that is, is, is really not the story of his, his prophetic ministry that he had and all these prophecies that eventually came true and that got quoted by Jesus himself. The most impressive thing about really Isaiah was how he was transformed into the kind of person God could use to bring this message of good news of a coming Messiah. Now, if you, if you haven't read Isaiah, I'm just going to give you a quick little update. In the first five chapters, you'll find Isaiah, uh, he has a different, uh, one pastor that has always been to mention to me, he says this, he says, Isaiah has, has a flavor about him <laughs> in his first five chapters. There's a flavor about his ministry. There's a certain way his ministry looked. And if you looked at it, you would basically see that the flavor of his ministry and the the style of his ministry was all about pointing out the faults and shortcomings of others. Here's a few examples in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18. He says this, Woe to those, woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. In verse 20, he goes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And then verse 21, he says, Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves as clever. And then 22 says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at pouring beer. And over and over, we hear Isaiah using this kind of language. Woe to those Woe to those! Woe to those! This is his flavor of ministry. But in chapter 6, we see a change. A significant change. In his own words, this is what Isaiah says. 6, verses 1-4. through In the year that King Uzziah died, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but you should just Google King Uzziah. He's a pretty awesome dude. Right up to the very last part, okay? You read it yourself. So, they lost a really great king. Everyone was devastated. And here's what happened. 
Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Everyone was looking for a king to be established to replace this great one. And in his despair and in his search, in his heart for a king, the Lord established himself as king. It says this, the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, the angels, it's kind of angels, angels, uh, they're different kinds of angels. I like what one commentator said, he said, you know, just as they're different kinds of people, even on the earth, God is a creative God, and he created all different kinds of angels, and you can do a whole study on yourself, there's seraphim, and there's all, there's all different kinds of angels. These ones had like a fire-like quality to them. Anyways, uh, interesting stuff. It won't get you saved, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um... A seraphim were standing above them, each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. Okay. So, here we have Isaiah. He himself finds himself in the presence of the Lord. And he witnesses angels crying out in worship, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, in response to seeing the Lord. Now, I don't have this in my notes, but I just thought this was a really interesting thing I should say in my study, the Hebrew language is a language I don't understand very well, but when you study it, it's very, very fascinating. In the Hebrew language, they have different ways of, of, of creating uh, importance of a phrase. And so when they repeat a word, it literally is a, is a phrase. That, that, so like, if you want to say like he's, he's very strong, it would go strong, strong. You know, in, in the Hebrew. And here it's just holy, holy, holy. And so there's this connotation that like... like the Lord is super holy, okay? Like, like we, we can't let go of this. Before we go any further, you can't, in our own language, you know, like, oh, we sing holy, holy, holy. You know, we sing that one song that just seems to go over and over. Holy, holy, holy. We get it, worship leader. Holy is the Lord. Get to the interlude, please. Okay, but in this language, in this, in this culture, this idea of repeating the holiness of God reaffirms the reality that God is holy and that there's no one like him and there's no one who can be like him this is not about his, even, even about like his comparison of who he is, but this is more about his untouchability. That no one, nothing can be like our God. Only he, as Jesus would say, is great. And so we need to get that in our mind first. I, I, don't, I don't know any better way to help us understand that because this is what Isaiah was seeing. Oh my goodness, I see the Lord. And the angels, even the angels with their wings, six of them. What? They're going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And I'm going, wow, these angels look pretty holy. But they're saying, holy, holy, holy. is. Does that make sense what I'm saying here? Like, Really, if you don't catch the sense that God is awesome and he's great, uh, really the, the rest, um, you're going to feel like I'm really trying to push for something it's coming out of nowhere. You're like, oh, okay, like I don't get this. But you have to understand that the Lord is holy. There's nothing like Him. We sang about this. 
Because when Isaiah understood this, it was interesting what Isaiah says. Check this out. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I love what some other translation says. I am what? Undone. Oh. Because I am a, I am a man of unclean lips. And some of you know in our studies in the past in biblical phraseology, the idea of unclean lips can mean to literally you've got a potty mouth. But also it's the understanding of what the psalmist had always said is that out of what? The heart the mouth speaks. And so there's this idea of it's there's this it's not just this uncleanliness of like my words, but like all of me. I am finished in light of who you are, God. Ah, oh, I am unclean. Now, <laughs> if you're not paying attention, I think you can miss the amazing transformation that happens here. Because in fact, actually, if you hear this passage preached a lot, one of you will go like, get to the here am I, send me Lord part. I love that part. We're actually not even going to talk about that. That's the one that people talk about a lot. Because why? We love hearing about like, here am I, Lord. Who's going to send me? Yes, send me. But you have to remember that before even he gets sent, a transformation happens inside of Isaiah. And we can't miss this. He is transformed. In the first five chapters, we see Isaiah consumed, what? With looking around and calling out all the problems with others, their shortcomings, their failures. Woe to those. Woe to those. Oh, woe to those. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm the only one who can be tempted to think like this too. I don't think I'm the only one who could look around and find people or circumstances that don't live up to our standards. I don't think I'm the only one that can look around and look at people and righteously, you know, in truth, say, they're not as good as me. And we compare ourselves to others foolishly, don't we? For instance, I have a nephew <clears throat> who what you would call is your prototypical basketball player. He uh, is 6'4", super athletic. In fact, uh, this is the picture he took at his wedding when he got married. That's with his groomsman. Okay? He's, he, he loves basketball. Played basketball through high school. He was on the uh, practice squad. He was the practice. He played on the practice squad team for his school. It was a D1 school, so he wasn't on the team, but he was on the practice squad. Anyways, so he loved basketball. Committed his life. But listen, <clears throat> Andy, he's a redhead with the ball. If you couldn't tell, <laughs> um, I know we look alike. <laughs> <clears throat> but Andy loved basketball, and when he was younger, uh, like around eight years old. Um, he would always want to play basketball, especially uh, when we were like at Grandpa's house and, and we were all there, you know, gathering family together and we, we, play ba we play basketball at Grandpa's house. Now, every once in a while, he'd get the courage and he'd try 
to uh, challenge me to a one-on-one. And I'm not the one to brag, you know, especially during a, on a sermon about humility. But when I played against him, I was awesome. Like, I was really good. <laughs> I, I literally virtually got every rebound. And seriously, I made most of almost all of my layups. Because, well, Andy was eight. <laughs> but imagine with me what would happen if, while well, Andy and I, and eight-year-old Andy and I are, are, are playing basketball there, me, you know, submitting him to my will, you know, doing the classic hand on the forehead, <laughs> you know, every time he went to shoot the ball, oh! Ah, ah, you know, I mean, imagine, imagine me and eight year and me just hip checking him so he goes flying across the driveway, bloody knees, you know, crying, and I'm going, ah. right? Imagine that situation, and I just think I'm the stuff, you know. All of a sudden, the limo pulls up, and out comes LeBron James. LeBron James. <laughs> Imagine LeBron James approaches me and he gets out of that car and he goes, Hey, uh, hey, Santillan, you think you're pretty good at basketball, huh? Why don't you mean me, uh, why don't we go ahead and play one-on-one? And me and LeBron James, who is literally a foot taller than me, 250 pounds of pure muscle. We go one-on-one. And as you can imagine, and as I would imagine, all of a sudden I'm not getting any rebounds. (laughs) Suddenly, I'm not as good as I thought I was. I can't hold a candle to LeBron James. Now, if I compare myself to eight-year-old Andy, I could probably go like, hey, I'm pretty good at this thing. <laughs> I could probably go pro, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but when I compared myself to the real deal, woe is me. I am ruined. <laughs> I think this is what Isaiah was dealing with, whether you like that illustration or not. <laughs> Woe to you who are caught up in excessive drinking. Woe to you who are caught up in the ropes of sin. Woe to you who call evil good. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But then one day Isaiah Isaiah sees the Lord and all of a sudden he goes, maybe he did what the tax collector did. Woe is me. I am not as great as I thought I was. I am ruined. If we want to embrace humility, if I want to embrace humility, I have to see clearly that God is great. And I am not. It's not a mind-blowing 
sermon point. But if you wrestle with it, it can be life-changing. If I want to embrace humility, I have to see clearly that God is great and I am not. This requires learning, knowing, and reminding yourself of all that God has done and is doing and has promised to do. This requires an active participation of confessing how great God is. This is why when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he told them to start it like this. Our Father relationship. It's also a declaration of headship and a right understanding of where we stand. We are just the children. Yes, we are deeply loved, but remember, he's still dad. So sometimes we get the, come here you. And sometimes we get the, if you make me turn this car. (laughs) Sometimes we get that. But God's a good father. Your name be what? Honored as holy. Holy. Hallowed be your name. Question. (laughs) When was the last time your prayers help you grow in humility because of your recognition of who God is? Like when you sat down to pray, how did your prayers attribute to the growth of humility in your life because you took time to recognize who God is. And that's what Jesus said to do when you pray. Do you, do we pray like that? I just, I, I wonder, like, do we start our prayers? Uh, and it's really, this is not about now, all right, Pastor Phil said we got to start our prayers recognizing who God is. And so for every time we're going to pray now, we're going to have to say, you know, dear God, heavenly father in heaven, God is great. God is good. Let us thank you for our food. Amen. Right. So uh, obviously now we check that off. No, I'm talking about like transformational like prayers that recognizes with your heart the greatness of who God is and confesses with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. When was the last time your prayers sound like this? God, you be honored. You are great. When was the last time? Because if you want to embrace humility, you have to see clearly that God is great and that you are not. This is why Jesus said what he said in what would be known as the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you've been part of our fellowship for a while, you know that we've gone over the the, <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount numerous of times, and you've, you've heard me teach on this before. But I think it's just a good reminder to understand once again, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? My favorite definition that I found is this. To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God in utter dependence on Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, at this point, <coughs> I know some people may be wondering, okay, 
Phil, when are we going to get to the good news about Jesus and how he makes us more than conquerors and how we're his masterpiece created anew in Jesus Christ so we can do good works that were prepared for us long ago. You know, get to the good part, the good news part, get to the good news part. When, when are you going to get to there? Listen, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Don't worry. But I also don't want us to be too quick to miss the fact that the good news of the gospel does not actually start at the cross of Jesus. It doesn't start there. The cross is definitely the penultimate demonstration of the love, of the sacrifice, of the power of God. But it doesn't start there. It doesn't even start at the manger. We've said this before. We say this, you know, the good news of the gospel actually starts where? Where? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created. The gospel starts actually in the beginning. The good news of the gospel actually is a story that starts in the beginning, and it proceeds to be told in a collection of writings inspired by God over a period of about 1,500 years by over 40 authors from all walks of life with all different kinds of perspectives in all types of situations with the original manuscripts written in three different languages over three different continents and covers a hundred, like really hundreds, hundreds of controversial subjects which all, by the way, fits together in one cohesive story with an appropriate beginning, a logical ending, a central character, and has a consistent theme throughout, which paints a story that invites all of us to be a part of. The gospel is not just an invitation to be saved. The gospel is God's story from beginning until eternity that he is telling, a story of redemption, all of Scripture is God's story of good news. This is the gospel. Now, why do I say this? Because we've discussed this from many different perspectives, and I've said it in many different ways, but all presentations of the gospel follow the explanation of the Scripture of four themes of God's story. First is what? In the beginning, what? God created. So we talk about the story of creation and how the gospel talks about that God is creator. And when we recognize that he's the creator of all things and that he's made all things and not anything was made that has anything made without him, like that's the beginning of the gospel to recognize that. And then we move from there to what? Separation. That man in our own will chose separation from God because of our rebelliousness. We have been made separated from God not because of what God did, but because of everything we did. And then, therefore, that perpetuates this ongoing sin that now we inherit all. And then there's this promise, right? The promise, the promise which is told, is foretold over and over again and through the prophet Isaiah, even more and more so. And then eventually this fourth movement, which is rescue and restoration, which is the part we all love. It's the Easter story. It's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the baby in a manger. It's the, it's the, he lives, he lives part. And it's the part that we love where now we are, we are his workmanship, his poema now created anew. And here's the thing. These four themes tell more than just the reality of what God does and who he is, but it speaks also to who we are and who we are to, and how we are to live. And it can be tempting just to concentrate on rescue and restoration. The, the part of the gospel that, uh, 
you know, that, that talks about like, oh, getting saved and believing in Jesus and you're free from sin. We can concentrate on that. But as one pastor and author says, God did not give us his gospel simply just so we can embrace it and be converted. Actually, he offers it to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. And I would argue that in today's culture, there's not enough encouragement to lean into separation and promise. The part of the gospel that explains just how deprived we are without God and how in need we are of his promise. I would argue that much of why we don't experience the victorious Christian life we long for is because we spend too little time embracing a poverty of spirit, a humility that declares in light of who God is and what he has done, woe is me. And because of this, we don't ever fully realize the amazing (laughs) and the wonderful truth of what it actually means to be forgiven and set free. Because, if truth be told, some of us have never really embraced the reality that we are with God nothing. Or as another commentator said, Poverty of spirit is foundational because the continual sense of spiritual need is the basis for an ongoing spiritual blessing. A perpetual awareness of our spiritual insufficiency opens us to continually receiving spiritual richness. Poverty of spirit is something we never outgrow. In fact, the more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty 